Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels part 35. Last week we started our journey through the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, whichever version you want to think about, and specifically the Beatitudes where we finally, finally get some explicit teaching from Jesus. There's no ambiguity on what it is that he said or meant, like him going up to the mountain sitting down and speaking these words, looking his eyes up to the disciples and to the crowds, he had some very important things to say. Unabridged. And what were those things? Um, He was showing that the kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, that those who are lacking in this age, those who live frugally, um, even those physically who are poor in resources, have a hope for the future in the kingdom that they're going to experience more. They're going to get to experience abundance. And that those that put their hope and their consolation in the things that they've been gifted in this world, they're going to be pretty disappointed, you know, when they realize that the kingdom is not going to be a place for them because they did not have that hope for the future. Um, And then I guess we're getting ready to continue that theme through some more Beatitudes. Uh, Yeah, we had Luke, who he kind of seemed to focus on, uh, I don't know what to call it, maybe more practical uh, approach, where he's talking about the poor and uh, the the weeping and the hungry, those kind. And Matthew, he kind of he kind of made it a little more general at times, it seemed, when he could. He talked about the poor in spirit, and but then he talked about those who mourn. He talked about those who are meek, but he talked about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So mm-hmm. we see some kind of different approaches, different attitudes toward it. But yeah, it was really challenging. I mean, so excited to hear Jesus' teaching, but when you slow down and actually hear what's being said, Wow. I mean, we said it last time, we should say it again. This is a high, high calling mm-hmm. to be a disciple of Christ. And in an awesome, wonderful kind of way. It's great. Yeah. So, should we continue? Absolutely. I think we should. All right, let's do it. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Matthew says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Okay, so in just plain terms, who are the merciful? That would be those who show uh, favor uh, and compassion to others, especially to those who are less fortunate than them. Pretty easy picture, right? Uh, we should be merciful. I think that's easy for us to know. But what's the, what's the payoff? Well, you shall receive mercy. We are all of us in need of God's favor, God's compassion. And he gives it generously, freely. In fact, like the end of the story, what's the culmination of all of his mercy? Well, it's the kingdom. So in some sense, remember Samuel, last time we talked a little bit about measure for measure. Hey, you know what? You need to forgive so that God forgives you. You need, right? This is similar to that. You need to show mercy so that you receive mercy. But how awesome to be in this relationship with God because his concept of measure for measure is way out of balance. We do a small thing and he returns it abundantly, overflowing, right? So it's, 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 uh, it's such a great picture. But again, I tried to relate this to some verse out of the Old Testament or just somewhere else. So Samuel, why don't you read from us from Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Okay. <laughs> is that not the greatest thing ever? I mean, think about it. We are being generous to the poor. 
And we all know, where we should know, in that relationship, we should not have any idea, any concept of the recipient somehow accruing some sort of debt with us, right? We, we should never be thinking of it that way. And yet, God steps in. He views it from the outside as if we're lending to him. He takes on a debt on their behalf, and he repays you. Now, that's my kind of economy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if I could just say it out loud, when we see this in God, we should be trying to imitate him in our relationship with man. Just it's just a thing. It's good. Yeah, and it's a it seems like a form of consolation when you think about the spiritual measure for measure on God taking care of those things that you have put time, effort, resources in showing mercy and provision to others because I'm thinking about later when Jesus says things like bless those who curse you or persecute you or hate you or yeah. like when you get struck on the cheek, turn the other one, or if someone asks for your garment, you give them the cloak as well, because there's an aspect where measure for measure within the earthly realm is not experienced very well between man-to-man interactions, and God right. is like pushing people to continue like responding the righteous way, like with that hope that even if you don't experience the measure for measure with man, God will take care of it later. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, it's, it's treasure in heaven. And we're going to talk about that even a little more as we continue. So yeah. Oh, it's such a great picture. And if we could understand it and hold on to it, respond to it properly, I think there's fulfillment and joy in it that we just can't comprehend. Mm -hmm. Let's keep going. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, now there's a couple interesting things in here. So, first of all, who are the pure in heart? Well, maybe to understand this best, we need to back up just a little bit and think about purity just in general. And and let's think of it from a first century Judaism kind of perspective, because that's who is talking, that's where we are, that kind of thing. Ritual purity is the dominant cultural understanding. So uh, we need to, like modern people, we need to remember that that purity, that only applied to the flesh. It was all about purifying the flesh so that you could enter into God's presence in the temple. At least that's like the dominant image, right? Being pure in heart, well, that was to be clean of sin, uh, to to excel in justice and mercy. And it's a lot like, I think, another phrase we're familiar with, uh, circumcision versus circumcision of the heart. It's that same kind of story. So pure in heart are those who are, are seeking righteousness and, and uh, avoiding sin, if you will, to the best of their ability, right? Pure in heart. But what do they do? They see God. Now, Samuel, is that good news? Uh, depends on who you're asking. <laughs> yeah, it's a little weird, right? Because what happens when you see God? At least us now in our current state. Uh, you die. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, we cannot stand in his presence. In fact, let's, in case you think we're joking, Exodus thirty-three twenty. Samuel, how about you read that? But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Whoa. Okay, so what's our Bible trying to tell us here? God himself is saying, you cannot see me and live. And Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? Blessed are you who are pure in heart, for you will see God. Again, that purity of flesh is allowing you to enter God's presence, but the purity of heart is allowing you to see God. How is that worked out? Well, that continuing theme we've been walking through here, 
it is fulfilled in the kingdom. But this is an odd one because that's kind of indirectly. Jesus is the one that's here. Jesus is the king ruling over. And on one hand, we say, oh, Jesus is God. And so, um, you know, right, you, you get that. But on the other hand, we also do understand the distinct persons. There is Jesus the Son and there is God the Father. So we see, I don't know what else to call it, kind of an indirect fulfillment in the kingdom and an ultimate fulfillment in the world to come when God himself dwells with man in the new creation. It's kind of a cool picture, right? Mm -hmm. But pure in heart, they get to see God. That's something to look forward to. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Anyway, let me uh, relate another verse, Psalm uh, chapter 24, verses 4 and 5. Why don't you read those, Samuel? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, Mm. he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Yes. And I I can't help myself. I have to say it. That last little bit says he will receive blessing from the Lord. And uh, the second part, he will receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. So many people have this image in their head where they get born again and God has done something magically in them and they don't sin anymore. Or sometimes they twist it around and go, oh, well, maybe I do sin, but God doesn't see it that way. I'm pure and clean, right? Mm -hmm. They're, They're missing the story. What he's talking about is The new covenant, when you are resurrected, the Torah written on your mind and written on your heart, you receive righteousness from God, and it's not this magical, fakey kind of thing. This is the new covenant and the new creation in the new, all of it. It's an awesome, awesome image, but it's for those who have clean hands and a pure heart. Hmm. Now, I I have a question on this beatitude before we move on, if that's okay. do it. Now, would this aspect of someone hearing Jesus say, for they shall see God, especially in context to, you know, Jews' extreme emphasis on the Torah and knowing that God had this interaction with Moses and saying that no man shall see me and live. I don't know. I mean, my understanding of Jewish thought is still really low. I have a lot to learn. But I understand Jewish thinking is that they... They treat God as like so transcendent that it almost would dishonor him to try to like make him be able to exist within the physical realm or try to personify him. And what I'm getting at is, is, is there any aspect of the Greek language where when we're saying, for they shall see God, could the word see also be meaning like, getting to fully experience him uh, rather than like actually like a literal seeing him face to face. Like I know we have Jesus and he is like the personified God in flesh, but how would Jews be wrestling with this because they have such a high regard for his transcendence outside of our created world? Oh yeah. Well, there's a couple of things. One, for sure, what you're suggesting, is it more of a you know, seeing him as in knowing him, understanding him, you know, that kind of thing, by all means. I mean, that's a very valid way to be looking at this verse. But additionally, this kind of goes back to, remember, where we very first started. We know that God is transcendent. You can't fit the infinite into the finite. And so, what was the solution for that? There's this, this agent of God, this expression of God, this word, and he is God, you know, somehow fully God, and yet somehow limited so he can be in creation. Well, that very same image is the one that, that we're sort of looking forward to when we are all resurrected. And, you know, in a sense, all of creation is resurrected because heaven and earth pass away. We have a new heaven, new earth, the new Jerusalem. Well, that's that same thing. God being in creation like he was in the garden, being in creation at the end uh, when we all are made new, it's that same image. So I think that like so many things that they're good at, they hold these two things in balance, in tension, and, and they're okay with that. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, well, you know, 
as far as we think we're right. But yeah, let's yeah. keep, yeah, <laughs> let's keep going. Uh, what else we got? Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Okay. Peacemakers. Well, you know, peace covers a lot of things. So let's take a little look at this. We've got, um, okay, peace. I may as well use the word itself because that's a real thing. But other things, prosperity, uh, success or welfare, um, healthiness, friendliness, uh, deliverance and salvation. All of those things are, are kind of included in there. But peacemakers, I mean, you can hear it in the word, they're not passive. They are actively seeking all of these various qualities or attributes of peace. And, and I would say between themselves and God and between themselves and men, we, we seek peace. And I, man, we could even take it further and go between men and men, right? Maybe you're not even involved, but you're seeking peace between others, right? Peacemakers, this is a, a challenging and difficult thing to imagine, especially, boy, this modern world. People, we got a lot of tension between people, at least here in America, and, and it's, a, it's a big thing. But what's the payoff here? It, it says that they shall be called sons of God. Now, we got the plain sense, all right, so they're children of God, right? We understand that. Jesus was the son of God. We will be his siblings, if you will. Okay, but other things, we look back in Scripture, I think we've talked about this, the nation of Israel is referred to as the Son of God. When Israel had kings, they were actually referred to as a Son of God. They were an anointed one, okay? So so that sort of adds to this idea of what does it even mean to be called a Son of God? Well, it means that you are called chosen, you are called elect, you are called royal and you are called uh, authentic right you're not you're, you you are a true son and so in the kingdom you know thinking of all those things especially like the elect and the royal and all that we're supposed to reign with Christ we know that we even now we're supposed to be acting as a a, a kingdom of priests kings and priests right all that kind of thing mm-hmm. so it's it's a it's an Another awesome picture, but that being a peacemaker, very challenging. And especially, here's a little side note for us. Remember who he chose as the 12, Samuel? A couple of them in the group were zealots. Hmm. Were they searching for peace? <laughs> no, they were searching for revolt. Yeah, they, they were choosing violence. They thought that was a good answer, right? They thought they were being jealous for God. Uh, so you got to figure, at least there's a couple <laughs> in his little entourage that are going, what? No, say it isn't so. What are you saying, Jesus? Right? They probably didn't like this very much. But I found a, a couple of verses, that one's from the New Testament, one from the Old. Why don't we read those real quick? James chapter 3, verse 18, Samuel. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Ah, and think about that image. It's, it's as if peace is, I don't know, maybe it's all of them, the seed or the soil or the fertilizer for righteousness. You sow peace and righteousness is what you reap. Awesome image. How about Psalm 85.10? Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Oh, there's another image. What, what do we keep talking about? We keep saying, look, you're not working for your salvation. This is after you're saved, but this is who we are as disciples. We need to be steadfast and loyal and faithful toward God. And here it is. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. What's the result of that, Samuel? Righteousness and peace kiss each other. That, that relationship, that is what we should be seeking, right? And so, blessed are the peacemakers. That's good. They're, they're going to be bringing this about, yeah. Yeah, and I just want to say before you move on, um, definitely don't mean to 
get off on a rabbit trail or a tangent. I'm just trying to potentially help some people who might have some trigger words that send them down some (laughs) related paths of thinking. If, when you heard Paul say the word chosen or the word elect in this context, he, us, were not getting into theological debate about how those things are used so much in evangelical circles. I see them more as like, in this context, as like being in God's fold. Like, I'm a Tolkien fan, so uh, like two of the nations in Middle Earth were Rohan and Gondor, and like those who were a part of those kingdoms, some of them were called Riders of Rohan or Sons of Gondor, and it implied that you were a part of that nation's allegiance. And in the same way that you're saying, you know, we'll be called sons of God, chosen elect, that means like, like you said before, we are on God's team. Like God is giving us an opportunity to be a part of his story in fixing the world. Yeah. And to be sure, we are going to get into that later. I'm just saying. But you're right. We're not doing that here. We're 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 speaking in the terms you were just saying. So, yeah, good point. Anything else? Oh, okay. All right. All right. What's next? Matthew 5, 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay. A couple of things in here. Uh, there's this phrase, those who are persecuted. And this is a difficulty because the actual base form of the word that's here is a little simpler than that. It simply means to pursue. And so, we have to recognize, well, there's a couple of different ways to pursue. If you were pursuing in a negative sense, well, then you would be persecuting. But if you were to pursue in a positive sense, that's to to follow or join in, right? We pursue Christ. We pursue righteousness. Those are positive things. And so here... There's a real question. Should we be looking at this as persecuted, like the negative way, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, the kingdom of heaven, or is it those who pursue, like in a positive sense, righteousness sake? So let's talk about this. Uh, If we we are looking, and, and let's focus on Matthew for now so we don't confuse it, Matthew is talking about all kinds of positive things. He's been, you know, uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. Is he really switching topics right here? Is he going negative on us? And and it's a real question because when we get down to verses 11 and 12, we really, really do. So is verse 10, is it marking the end of all the positive stuff? So it's pursue in a positive way. Or is it the beginning of the negative stuff? That comes in 11 and 12, so it's actually pursuing a negative way like persecute. It's a real question. So, I'm just saying this. If if it's for righteousness sake, okay, it's not just for thinking or believing the right things. Now, obviously, it must include those. I mean, you kind of have to start somewhere, but it can't end there. For righteousness sake, it's manifest righteousness in thoughts and words in actions to 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 be heartily pursued in either sense positive or negative it, it depends on the loyal and faithful faithful behavior toward god why would somebody pursue you in a negative sense persecute you unless you were loyally and faithfully pursuing god in thought and word and action Or why would someone want to follow and join in unless you were really demonstrating that kind of behavior, right? It works both ways, I guess is my point. And and, I mean, if if I had to lean in one direction or another, I think I would actually lean toward, they probably shouldn't be saying persecuted in verse 10. They should just say pursue. Those who are being pursued for righteousness sake, people want to follow, they want to join in. Uh, you're, you're, in a sense, bringing others into the kingdom. But it works both ways. And in either way, the kingdom is the answer. 
or, or like the sort of the end result, right? Righteousness is totally welcome in the kingdom. And notice, I mean, at, at verse 10, we actually say it. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's exactly what he said when he started this thing. It's like bookends. And so this is Matthew's way by repeating it. He's emphasizing that everything in the list, everything between the bookends, all of them have their solution or fulfillment in the kingdom. And that is a very important image to keep in your head when you're reading those Beatitudes. We've talked about a lot of different things and we've focused a lot on the kingdom. You got to see that the writer meant that. This was an intentional thing. Yeah, and it it it's, it is something to wrestle with when you're thinking about this verse, asking yourself if if it's being used in a negative sense, what are they being persecuted for? Like, I know that persecution is a very common theme in modern times within the church and evangelicalism, and it involves persecution for a set of beliefs or uh, something about your faith that feels antagonistic to someone else. But in this mm-hmm. case, with you're saying that righteousness affects someone's thoughts, words, and actions, it represents that Hebrew equivalent of tov or good that people actually tangibly experience in day-to-day life. It would be like, well, I know that still people persecute that because they just yeah. have meanness in their heart. But still, you would normally think experiencing good is is kind of like a universal thing among all humanity that we all gravitate towards wanting to experience good because that is a part of God. And so it just seems a little weird that it would be persecuting for (laughs) good in the sense rather than pursuing righteousness sake. Yeah. And that is a really peculiar thing about this. Uh, We know, for example, God created, uh, not created, he he, uh, chose, uh, he separated Israel for himself. He wanted them to be a nation among all nations to bring salt and light. And the the, the idea of that was so they could see God, know God, be drawn to God. But we also know in human history that even when they were getting it right, they were being uh, attacked and persecuted for that. They're, I mean, in, in a sense, you're giving humanity the benefit of the doubt. You're, you're being optimistic. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and it's not that you're wrong. I mean, you're absolutely right. That's not the end of the human story. Humans also do get bothered. They see someone doing right and good, and maybe it makes them feel, I don't know, guilty or something. And so it makes them hate and lash out to the one who does good because it's making them look bad. Or, I mean, you could fill in the blank with all kinds of stuff. Humans respond in a strange way. I mean, just think of the whole big story, Samuel. If there is a loving God who wants to save all all humanity from death, why are there people who are not on his side? Why are there people who don't look to him and go, he's awesome. What a great guy. Instead, they hate God. They hate Christianity. They hate all of that stuff. So it's, it's a, it's a conundrum. Yeah. That, that we see, but, but it's a real human thing. I'm, I'm glad I brought it up to hear your answer but pardon me wants to retract what i said because what you said makes so much sense oh my goodness no we have to wrestle with these things it's so important for us and you know what on any given day you could be solid firm in a thing and something about the world something somebody says something you see people doing or saying it's it's gonna throw you off a little bit and and you gotta you got to rethink and rewonder, re-meditate on these things so that you can you can ground yourself back in I don't know, reality if you want to say that. It's good. All right. So, whether or not we want to take verse 10 as positive or negative, again, it's your choice. It can work both ways. Once we get to verse 11, there really is kind of a switch. We start looking at at the negative side of the coin if you want to call it that. Uh, and and I'm going to pull in now both Matthew and Luke. Uh, in Matthew, it's chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. In Luke, 
I'm doing that same thing. I'm going to pull in chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, but also verse 26. That brings in the woe. So let's read those. Matthew says it this way. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Luke's is similar, but it's different enough. We're just going to read the whole thing. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Wow. <laughs> it's not all feel good, is it, Samuel? <clears throat> no. All right. So, so we had a lot of things in here. We had things like revile you and hate you. Okay. Uh, other words we might think of are reproach or mock or taunt or scorn. Okay. Uh, so that's not good. Nobody really wants to experience that. Another one is persecute you, exclude you. Okay. This is, again, it's obviously pursuing in the negative sense. It's to oppress or maybe harass or bother. What else do we have in here? Uh, uttering all kinds of evil against you. And this is important. Falsely. Uh, evil against you falsely. Spurning your name as evil. And I'm going to, you know, assume again that that's false. Uh, this is at, like engaging in lying gossip about you. Uh, okay, tough stuff. Who wants to go through that? But notice both of them add that it's on account of Jesus or, or the Son of Man. And though it may be directed at you, like, you know, actually, in, in, in real life, in fact, behind it all, their grievance is with God. And their grievance is with, is with His Messiah. You are a target because they see Him in you. They hate him, and we might even think inexplicably, but they hate him, therefore they hate you. And you may be wondering, did this paragraph really start with blessed are you? Yeah. <laughs> Was that a real thing? <laughs> Say what? <laughs> yeah. After all of this, I'm supposed to be happy. Shouting in exultation, leaping joyfully, which I'll just be honest, this is probably not something you're going to see me doing often, but I'm supposed to be leaping joyfully. We have to get the vision in our head of treasure in heaven, doing things in the here and now that offer no immediate reward and sometimes you know, what's the opposite of reward, like loss or whatever. I mean, it's reviling and hating and persecuting and uttering evil, right? But knowing that in the midst of it all, God sees. God sees. And remember, we talked about that when God saw mm -hmm. and when man saw, God sees correctly. He sees it all. And, and, and I guess... You know, like the, the good news after that is that your reward is great in heaven. Now, I feel bad that I have to say this out loud, but I have to say this out loud. This doesn't mean that you've got a pirate chest full of gold waiting for you up in heaven. That, that's not the image. We should say it. Arr, matey. Aye, matey. I had to say it. it 
you that's not what it is. What it means is that you have accrued favor, merit, recompense, wages with God. They are resting with him. And the reward that we receive, well, that comes in the form of, we've talked about a lot of things, mercy, etc. It's it, Ultimately, it comes in the form of that new covenant, the resurrection, the Torah on our minds and on our hearts, the kingdom, and even the world to come. All of this is wrapped up. Your reward is great in heaven. He's storing it up for you. And then Luke really, man, this is, this is rough because Samuel, let's just be honest. Don't you kind of want everybody to like you? For the most part, yeah. Yeah, me too. I mean, that's a people thing. Now, most of us are, are balanced enough that when there are people that don't like us, you know, we get it. I, I, I get it. I grate on some people. But you want everybody to like you and Luke throws it out there. Kind of like a sanity check. If you find yourself, and again, I think we got to go back and, and be fair and say it's your thoughts and your words and your actions. It's the whole package. If you find yourself loved and accepted by everyone, well, you may be off course. False prophets are loved because they're saying what people want to hear. It's the tickling of the ears. Some will be attracted to us, and this this is this is exactly the question that you asked just a few minutes ago. Some are going to be attracted to us, others are going to be repulsed. But it still comes down to our thoughts and words and actions. It's who we are in Christ. And remember, people may scorn you. Well, how do I say it? There's a couple possibilities here, Samuel. People may actually be attracted to you, people may be repulsed by you because you are really, honestly, a good, faithful, loyal servant of God, and and you are going for it with your whole heart. Just remember, sometimes that people may be repulsed by you, they may scorn you, except, you know, fill in the blank with all of that, just because you're goofy. I mean, you're you're just being out there. And I'm saying that because don't be that guy. We all need to really really examine ourselves. Are you just being a weirdo? Are you being just, I don't know. Well, I'll just say it. There are people who call themselves Christians and the way that they talk and act just bugs me to no end. They just do. Now, I'm not questioning their salvation. I'm not going to go that far. But man, they're irritating, bothersome. Don't be that guy. Yeah. Of course, I say this knowing that some people are bothered by me, but whatever. We still love all you. Yeah. (laughs) Is it possible to hang up on a podcast? I feel like I'm hearing a dial tone. (laughs) Click. Yeah. Now, before you go on, um, I just wanted to bring up a a couple of things that stuck out to me as you went through this beatitude. The first thing is if... And I've thought this and felt this myself. If someone is hearing what Paul is saying and ultimately what Jesus is saying about be feeling blessed or happy or whatever adjective you want to put in there when you're experiencing these hard things in life, I, I don't think, in my opinion, that Jesus is trying to spurn us to force ourselves to like put on a happy face and not be able to experience like the hard aspects that life is going to hold like for everybody uh like that is a reality of life that we're going to experience hardship like John 16:33 in this world you will have trouble i i really love last week when you used one of the potential definitions of blessed as contented i i think that Jesus is getting that you still can have a sense of contentment and a sense of peace while still being in the midst of that suffering or yes. that hardship or that wrong yes. being wronged because you know that's not going to be the end of the story that you know that God 
is going to write the end of it, and it's going to result in fulfillment, restoration, redemption, all those things. So like while you're in the middle of still experiencing and dealing with hard things and you're allowed to, like you can not let those negative emotions be the last word. And I say that and I'm definitely a negative Nancy a lot, but it's a <laughs> it's a call to me uh to do better as well to think about that promise, uh for sure. I, yeah. I'll let you respond before I say the other thing. Well, yeah, I, I'm in my mind. I'm just going, yes, 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 yes. It's not fake. It's not manufactured. There is a contentment, a peace that, well, what's the scripture? Surpasses all understanding or passes all understanding, whatever. That is a real thing. It's contentment in the midst. And it doesn't mean that you've got to put on this fake face. It's not yeah. that. But yeah, good, good point. Yeah. And the other thing is, while we were talking about especially or in both the Matthew and the Luke version about those that revile you, persecute you, those that hate you, exclude mm-hmm. you, um, asking like, why would, why would ultimately they be having this grievance with God and his Messiah? And part of me is wondering, I wonder if it goes back to all the way to the creation story when you have, you have this God of all creation and he is, determining what is good and what is truth and then you have humanity with its capacity to want to choose that for themselves and we see that in the garden and so i wonder if like that's one big reason why you know all across human history people have taken offense at this god because in their mind and their hearts they want to be able to choose for themselves what is good and what they want to do and god's like no like I know what is going to be best for making sure that humanity is taken care of for and creation is taken care of for, and that means like following me. And so that's why people like it results in such hate and reviledness because they don't like being told what is good and true. It's, you know what? You have nailed it, hit it right on the head. That is exactly it. And it's important. See, Samuel, what you're talking about. This is the whole big story. The whole big story is God elevate, I'm sorry, man elevating his own will above God's and choosing to define good for himself. And God is fixing all of that. And, and yeah, I think you're right. The, why are people not just falling all over themselves to get to this loving God? Well, it's because they're offended. Don't tell me what to do. I will decide what is good and what is not. Yeah, I think you're right on. Good, good point. Yeah. (laughs) How much are you loving the Sermon on the Mount? We're like 12 verses in. What is this? This is great. (laughs) All right. Uh, What do we got next? Matthew 5.13. Here we go. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Okay, so uh, let's talk about some practical things. Samuel, what, what is salt good for? And like especially back in first century Judaism. Uh, Well, I'm going to get the first one out of the way because I experience it every day. It adds some flavor to the food, (laughs) Um, but it also prevents food from going bad as quickly as it could. It it preserves it. Yeah, and and it also, uh, sometimes they used it uh, to aid in healing. I'm sure that hurt, a little salt in the wound, if you know what I'm saying, but uh, yeah, it also aids in healing. We know that. We do like a salt rinse on our throat, stuff like that. So this is what the nation of Israel was supposed to be to all the other nations. We just talked about that. And let's roll the story forward. This is what we are supposed to be as well. We are flavor. We are preservative. We, we offer healing. This is our role on the earth in partnership with God, right? Now, here's another thing. Samuel, what's the, what's the chemical name for salt? Sodium chloride. Yeah. Looks like knackle, 
but it's sodium chloride, right? <laughs> NaCl. And, and if somehow salt lost any of its qualities, like here, Jesus is talking about its taste, well, it's not knackle anymore. I'm sorry, I'm being silly. It's not salt anymore, right? It would be something else, because if it is sodium chloride, then it is going to taste salty, okay? If somehow that really could happen, you would have sodium chloride, but somehow it lost its saltiness, what's it good for? It's useless. You just throw it out. Literally would be trampled on if if you threw it out somewhere where people walked. I got another good example. I was a high school chemistry teacher for a year. Maybe this could help the the imagery for people. Bring it on. If you put table salt in a glass of water and it dissolves, you think, oh yeah, like you can't get that back anymore because, you know, you can't see it in that crystallized powdery form. But if you were to boil that glass of water and remove all of the H2O, you would you would be able to return that salt to its original form. It never stopped being salt while, even when it was in solution. So yeah. that's a, another good like way to hopefully add that like it's either salt or it's not. Oh, that's good. That's so good. Especially with what we're going to say next. Because why why is Jesus saying this? I mean, this isn't this isn't teaching on salt. <laughs> he he's talking about us. Okay, just like salt, God's people act as a preservative. We bring healing, flavor to the world, this age. We do it how? By being a disciple of the Christ. We're we're imaging God. We are living according to his will and not our own. We are, in a sense, beckoning others to see and know God through our very lives. Which, you know, we, the, the, the phrase we use in, in the Bible, it's good works, right? We'll talk about that more. Further, and this is the important part, if we do not have these qualities, well, just like, well, then it wouldn't be salt, well, then we really aren't disciples. Or, I, I don't know your story, maybe you're not a disciple anymore or something, right? It's important to see salt can't stop being salt, not if it's true salt. And a true disciple can't stop being a true disciple. And, and if somehow they did, if, if, if these qualities were missing, well, they wouldn't be salt. They wouldn't be a disciple. So you can't just say or think that you're salt or a disciple. You, you have to actually be it. Otherwise, you're actually good for nothing. You'll be thrown out and trampled. Now, I know we already made jokes about it, and now it's getting worse. It probably sounds a little harsh, but I just want to remind you, Jesus is the one talking here. I'm just trying to to sort of expound on it a little bit, help you see what he's actually saying. And if this is bothering you, I'm going to go way out on a limb and say, you know what? You probably need to hear this. And in a sense, we all need to hear it. It's kind of like that little grain of sand in the oyster. What's the end result of that, Samuel? Uh, Pearl. Yeah, beautiful pearl. You need to hear what Jesus is saying to you right here about salt. This is a hard message, but it's so important and good for us. Yeah. And I want to bring this up because it's something I continue to struggle with and wrestle with with being salt and flavor and preserving and healing for the world, like others around connected to my life. This phrase that you said, beckoning others to see and know him through mm-hmm. our, our own very lives. And I want to get get back to the Jewish context on how this was a look, because I, I want to be able to follow Jesus the way that he intended it, like even to his Jewish audience how much of this beckoning is the typical evangelical way of like, like any, I was even taught this in student ministry when I was in college. Like at a lot of times I, I've almost felt like a salesman where 
I would get taught this spiel that I need, you know, I needed to have ready to say there is an aspect of that that's true. I mean, in the New Testament, I think Paul says, have a reason ready yeah, for the yeah. hope that you have. But at the same time, like, like not everybody has the personality or the countenance to be like a convincing salesman to everyone that they meet. So right. you have that side of things. How much of it also is on the other side is focusing so much on pursuing righteousness in your own personal life and that that results in radical hospitality, radical generosity, radical compassion to your fellow man that people are just floored because they're not used to experiencing the hesed, right. the loving kindness. And then that is like a stepping stone to be like, why are you doing this? Like, you you shouldn't be treating me this way. Why are you doing it? And then you can say, well, I'm representing the God of Israel. I'm, yeah. So my question is, like, which one is it? Well, uh, I, I'm going to try to be just a little bit uh, political because uh, I don't want to offend people too much because we kind of already have. Um, so here's the thing. Is there a place for, you know, what, what we think of as just like straight out evangelism, the, the going out and, uh, in a sense, confronting people with the message and all of that? Kind of, well, of course, there is a place. There is a time and a place. And is it true that, uh, you know, some people, some people are actually maybe a little more uh, gifted or, or built for that kind of thing and others not? Uh, by all means. By all means. And should we ever think that there's a, a situation where it's like, well, yeah, yeah, that, like some of us, no, we never, ever, ever have to do that. Uh, no, I, I think that would be wrong. I think that's a bad picture. Somewhere in here, there is a balance that says, like what you were talking about with Paul the Apostle, look, we have to be ready. We have to be able to... Um, offer whatever it might be, testimony or, or just uh, maybe some sort of story teaching, whatever, uh, for people and their lives. We have to be ready with that. It has a place. It has a purpose. But in modern-day America, modern-day evangelicalism, etc., it's just gotten way out of balance. And, and we think that fruit is, you know, Getting people saved, which we don't even mean saved. We just mean, you know, conversion. There's no discipleship going on. Um, we, we get, I just want to tell you about Jesus, and then you need to agree with me, and then boom, we're done. That is so not the image. This idea of actually imaging God, being a disciple, walking around so that people are looking at you and going, dude, you're different. You're just not like everybody else. Some may be offended by it and others may be attracted to it, right? But that has to be, I think, the dominant role. If the church in America looked like what we are describing, we may still be hated by some, but we would not be the, the, the ridiculed ones. We wouldn't be like the laughing stock that we've become in America. And when, then, when we said anything about Jesus or talking about God or, you know, their need for salvation, et cetera, et cetera, it would have weight. It, it would be something that people could actually hear and take seriously, which I don't think they do now anymore. Other countries, I'm sure, very, very different story. But we live here. Right, So we're talking about our story in some sense. So we can't bash that stuff like it's not valid and not good, but I can say what we're describing is definitely, definitely missing. And again, I'm going to reiterate, it needs to be the dominant thing in our evangelism, if you will, because it's the thing that actually brings authenticity and and value to the message that we're trying to bring with our mouths. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, and to kind of add to that, especially Jesus' first phrase, you are the salt of the earth, and I'm not trying to be sarcastic at all. If, if there was any chance that he was hinting at like 
mankind's discovery of like salt that came from the earth salt did not pitch itself to mankind to say like hey like look how great i am and how many different uses i have <laughs> right, right. like man discovered salt by however which way digging which that's a pretty good image of digging into the scriptures but yeah they, yeah. they discovered it and then they tasted it they experienced it and they're like oh my gosh this thing is so good we need to tell everybody about this and have them come with us and get to experience some of it themselves yeah. and i wonder if that's getting at it like God, uh, jesus is saying if you like hold this story this narrative of me and my fathers in your life so dearly that it is reflective of how you're treating people others are going to experience you or ultimately experience me like the way that they experience salt and they're going to want more of it. So I, and, and I think that I don't want to make an assumption, but I just, I get concerned that more people are focusing on the spiel that they would need to have prepared more than the things that they're doing to become salt. Like, I think that more people could experience that greatness if they were, actually practically trying to say like how can i implement god's commandments and righteousness like in my life today yeah yeah i think you're so right uh uh it reminds me of the analogy of the body that was paul the apostle too right Mm -hmm. all of us you know we we have different giftings we play different roles i mean we're just we're all individual people but together we make up the body of Christ in his absence. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that collectively we should look like God. Remember uh, we told the story about Abraham and Isaac and he looks so he was the uh, spitting image. Mm-hmm. Um, we as the body of Christ should collectively look like the spitting image of God, the father or the spitting image of Jesus, the son that's what it is to be salt. Yeah. And light, which we're going to talk about, but sadly, that's going to have to be next time. Uh, but yeah, th- this is this is powerful stuff. And it's difficult to know how people are going to take the podcast once we get to this part. I, I hope it's all good and positive and they're, they're like falling in love with it like we have. But this, this is so challenging. This is life changing. This is what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah, I here I am being the guy saying controversial things this week, um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just going to throw it out there. Do it. Because last week I talked about karma. This week, one of the things I hear a lot of secular people, like non-religious people, who are, they're, they're actually hinting at wanting to image God without knowing it. One of the things I hear people say a lot is like, man, I just, like, I just want to love people, like, that 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 yeah. needs to be the solution to it all like i just need to love people and i think that like instead of condemning them we should say you're right now let me help show you through god how you can do that like yes your your heart your heart is good but like without god you actually don't know how to do it without destruction like let me let me help you learn that yeah yeah they, I agree with you 100%. They are absolutely right. That is the answer. But they need to let God define what love is. And that's usually where it gets messed up. They just want to do whatever they want to do. This is how I think loving people should work, right? And, mm-hmm. and God has sometimes a very, very similar picture. But in other ways, it's a very different picture. And we need to let him define it. Yeah, totally agree with you, Samuel. All right, now I'm done. Okay. Well, then if you're done, I'm done, which means we're done. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie dokie Most podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you're notified when our episodes release on Sundays at 7 p.m. so that you never miss an episode. We also would really appreciate it if you left a review and a rating on your podcast app to let us know how this content is impacting your life. Our content is now available on all podcasting platforms, so please make sure you check us out on your electronic device. You can also visit our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, 
We love to hear from you. Please send any questions or comments you have to okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.